AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for June 24th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, I'm joined today by Stan Nurlov, resident malware expert. Stan, what's new with you in the world of malware? Well, nothing, just uh, analyzing APT malware as usual and things of that nature. Been focusing a little bit on uh, PlugX recently. Mm -hmm. well, we're very appreciative of all your efforts there. Uh, also joined on the phone by Jim Clausing. Jim, what's new with you? Well, busy with a couple of forensic investigations, as you're well aware, and obviously I can't talk about those on here. All right, well, whatever you're doing there, I'm sure the efforts are also appreciated. Also joined on the phone by John Markley today. John is also a regular contributor. What's new with you? I've been doing a lot of stuff with uh, mobile device security and keeping track of uh, all the threats and risks that uh, uh, you know, our millions of uh, consumers uh, encounter every day. So let's move on to our first story. Uh, Stan, you have something to talk about with a, a very well-known, um, I don't know how much you would call these guys because they're, they're not quite legitimate, but they are a business. Yes. Could you go uh, into that? It's the hacking team, and uh, there's a report by, I guess, a few people, Kaspersky uh, and others, that talks about uh, this new development that they've uncovered and what the hacking team does. So hacking team, they create, I guess, spyware is the best way to put it, for law enforcement agencies and um, uh, other agencies, they call them, which would probably be like intelligence agencies, and appears to be, based on what Kaspersky is reporting, and probably majority of countries that would be interested in something like this. Um, so the new thing that they were reporting is that they had made some conclusions about the fact that it's not only like Windows malware that these guys create, the hacking team, but they found links to mobile malware that they tie back to this uh, hacking team. The RCS, which is their remote controlling like service framework. Uh, so that's kind of the new thing, you know, they found links to Windows Mobile, iOS, and uh, Android, and Blackberry. So malware for all of these platforms, besides uh, what we've already known about this team, which is OSX and uh, uh, Windows Trojans. Um, for iOS, one thing that was interesting that they reported is that the way they distribute the malware is they try to jail for iPhone, try to jailbreak your iPhone uh, when it's connected to your either your Mac or your Windows PC, and it's like a little loader um, that they use to install it uh, on on there. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting, you know. I guess when you're getting paid for this, uh, this is actually one of the great examples of when an adversary or some attacker is getting paid to actually develop code. They'll probably be able to cover a majority of platforms and things like that, because they're creating the spyware and actually like selling it as a business. I guess there's some concerns there, right? Is this legitimate or not? Is there a need for it? It can become a whole philosophical discussion. I know a lot of people have opinions. Right, the, the targets, you know, ranging from you know activists to other people of interest, and it's, it, it is it is a sort of a gray area as to who they operate on. Right, exactly. Right, I found it interesting um, from a malware standpoint that they they actually um, took extra pains to to package the Android um, malware in a way that made it harder to to analyze, which is you know standard packers being used all over the place. But I, I haven't heard too much about it being used in the Android space. 
So it was new to me and kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. You're right. And uh, it's definitely something that we'll be digging into, I think, a lot more. I, they, they listed a bunch of indicators in the article. Um, so uh, it's something I don't know we'll be pulling at to see what else falls out um, in terms of indicators and uh, understanding the, this team. Great. Well, thank you, Stan. Next up, um, I have a little bit of a story about uh, vulnerabilities in what's called a baseboard management control system. Now, um, there was a vulnerability in a system, certain BMC, that was used by a brand of uh, server called Supermicro, I believe. Turns out that these systems, you know, if you're not familiar with baseboard managed control, whereas they have other names, you know, this one brand type is ILO, um, that's specific to a particular vendor, I th I'm not sure which one. Uh, IPMI is another name for this, but these are basically uh, boards, you know, computer boards that are built into other systems to manage them. So you log into this system and you can manage the other system remotely, completely, you know, mess with the OS, uh, power up, power down. Uh, but this particular vulnerable one, all you had to do was make a request to it on a particular port number. Uh, I think that's 49152. Just make an HTTP request to a particular path and it'll hand you its password. That's, uh, yeah. that's pretty scary. That's fairly scary. Uh, yeah, so I, I know from what I heard that uh, Supermicro actually has a patch out for this, but this is one of those classic cases where you've got a system, it hasn't been patched for one reason or the other. And so um, I believe the Shodan project actually released some notes and numbers about exactly how many of these they found just on the open engine that they scanned that one port and they tried the, the path that they wanted, you know, that's specific to this vulnerability, and they found it. A little bit scary, yes. especially because it's not just you've got, you know, a service running on the system. You've basically got management privileges on the box at that point. I wonder where the security engineering team was on that one or oh, the security lunch, testing team was mm -hmm. on that one, right? Right. Basically, you, you have the box, right? You have the piece of hardware in your hands, it's, essentially. And one of the other scary uh, things in, uh, pointed out by um, one of the guys who wrote the initial advisory was that 10% uh, of those 32,000 had uh, default passwords or very easily guessable passwords. Mm-hmm. They, they strongly hinted as to what that password was uh, in the article, if you want to go dig that up, if you're inclined to be hunting for such things. Um, but yeah, it seems like that it's a combination of oversight in the security design of the system and oversight in the, the administrator's side as well, who is responsible for changing that password when it comes out of the box to them. So, you know, in general, this is one of those, those things that crops up every once in a while. and. Let's hope that it gets fixed fairly fast. Those BMCs, you know, IPMI, ILO, whatever you want to call them, the, um, you know, I, I used them a lot when I was doing system administration kinds of stuff, but you really need to keep those on a separate management network that is not internet accessible. You need to be blocking those off. Um, those aren't necessarily always the easiest things to patch, but uh, you know, when the patches come out, they, they need to be applied to those as well as, you know, just like you apply OS patches, servers running on the box. Now, I've, I've heard in some cases that some vendors actually implement it so that the same hardware NIC card serves as both the main board's NIC card and the ILO or IPMI device NIC. 
uh, in which case it probably is a little trickier to isolate those two functions. You probably have to have it's some sort of tricky firewalling set up in order to get that to work the way you want it to and not be exposing both virtual or both, you know, logical interfaces to the outside. Yeah, I, I've never used one like that. The ones I've used always were, were a separate Ethernet port. Moving on, John, uh, you have an article here about uh, a shortage of information security professionals. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Guy uh, here in uh, CSO Rocco Del Carmine sent me a uh, copy of this slide out of ISAC uh, that talks really about that we're in a, a bit of a skills crisis now. We, we continue to address and, and recognize that APT attacks, that data security, especially you know, PCI, you know, uh, sensitive SPI data, those, those things are, are very important to us and they're growing. You know, the, the risk and the threat that puts those at risk is, is growing um, sometimes exponentially depending upon the market. So, you know, we, we have to think about who, who's, pre, you know, who's holding those keys to that kingdom. You know, is it, you know, we can only rely on the hardware and software so long. We need people to actually develop that hardware to, to create that software and then to in turn manage it and recognize what you're seeing on it. And, and so, so we have that balance of, you know, high risk is growing. Um, sometimes the security needs are growing as well, but but the people that run them, the, the physical uh, individuals, uh, we don't have the same number that we used to have. And, and certainly some of the industries uh, are, are lowering the amount of expenditure they're doing on those uh, individuals. I mean, in the, in the old days, you know, we used to say that, you know, every 10 firewalls needed one person, and now you're lucky to get, you know, 100 firewall or at least 100 firewall virtual machines you know, with one person. And so, so we, we have this need that for people that are trained um, and, and knowledgeable about security uh, sufficiently to, to manage uh, the, the risk. And, and, that's, and, that needs, and that, that, that those bodies are diminishing, the number of them. So what would you say is the path forward? I mean, is it, is it increased automation to try and lessen the burden on those small number of individuals who have to deal with such a large number of assets to keep secure? Or is it more of a, an education of users, an education of more InfoSec professionals, better training of the existing ones? What would you say? I think it's a little bit of, of all of the above. I mean, you know, you have personal opinions, you know, run rampant in this industry. But, you know, my, my own personal opinion is, is that we need more bodies, and the only way you're going to get more bodies is if you train them. And, and so the best ways are, are for colleges, institutions to actually run, you know, cybersecurity programs. I, I know there, there are a number of them out there. Uh, I've seen some master uh, degree programs that have been uh, published that, you know, that other universities can, can adopt. We've got, we've got to get the people up, and, and we, got to, we do have to increase automation. But I think that if we don't do the training and we don't express that need that this is a growing field uh, with jobs that are available, then, then we're, we're going to end up in a crisis. Agreed. Uh, I know that my own alma mater has a cybersecurity program now. Uh, kind of wish I could have gotten on that, that bandwagon. Uh, I think, Stan, that yours as well. Yeah, I graduated from Polytechnic University, and they have a pretty strong program. I guess the government, even maybe 10 years ago, had identified this need. They created special scholarships and various programs to address this, but you know, ten years later, the need is still here, and so more needs yeah, to the, be the done. The need's even higher, and, and you know, we're we're certainly not keeping up with the, the need very well. All right. Well, thank you very much, John. Our next topic goes to Jim. Jim, it seems that uh, some audits were done recently on Android apps for a number of, of interesting vulnerabilities. 
Uh, the one that made the biggest splash, it seems, is the presence of secret keys. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Actually, a paper that was presented at Sigmetrics by a, a number of researchers from Columbia. And the paper's actually uh, pretty interesting. I was just reading through it. I had only read the, the blurbs in some of the other you know, blog articles and so forth. There, there's actually some really good stuff in here on you know, uh, ways of comparing apps for similarity and, and that kind of stuff. The section that got everybody's attention, though, um, was section number eight out of nine in the paper. And that was that, that a lot of apps had various types of keys embedded in the apps themselves. So they, they have these keys in there, you know, and to increase interaction with social media of various types. But um, the developers aren't necessarily always using the keys properly or protecting them properly. And, and uh, you know, some of the keys in there provided a lot more access than what the developer realized. Fortunately, the, the researchers uh, contacted some of the developers and they've cleaned some of them up, but some of them, they had difficulty getting a hold of the developers. Using these keys would, could potentially allow the bad guys to create botnets uh, consisting of you know, not, not, not just necessarily the mobile devices themselves, but you know, cloud resources that uh, these keys allowed them to access. It's a pretty interesting paper, and I, I highly recommend that anybody who's interested in, in, interested in malware analysis or in um, analysis of mobile apps read the entire paper, not just the articles. Because there, there's some other interesting stuff in there about uh, the percentage of um, native code in, in various types of applications, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. But the, the key thing was, you know, these embedded use of key uh, of secret keys or tokens. And while the, this particular study was done of the Android uh, Google Play marketplace, my guess is that these same problems exist in other markets because the issue isn't really with the underlying platform. It's with software development and the way they try to interact with social media. So um, my guess is while the, this paper focused on Google Play, because that's, that's what they were surveying, the problem most likely exists on other mobile platforms, on iOS, on Windows Mobile. It sounds like there's, there's possibly two ways to go here, that you would either make sure that the keys that you are you know, that you're forced, kind of forced to expose because someone is eventually going to an analyze your code to limit the access those keys have, but as well, is there a way that you can protect those keys better inside the code? You, you probably can't protect them too much better inside the code because the code needs to access them uh, to actually make the connection to the, you know, to the other social media platform. But you do need to make sure that you're very careful about what access those uh, keys actually have. The one Ars Technica article was uh, talking about, you know, some of the Amazon AWS key
keys that they found in there that did more than what the developer, you know, had more access than what the developer realized. So you need to be very careful that the key that you're embedding in the app so that it can talk back to your cloud application or to your social media platform only has the access that it needs. All right, so developers, keep an eye out. Uh, make sure not to give too much away, I suppose. Stan, um, next up we have a little bit of an interesting paper that you found about just exactly what it takes for a user to, to be convinced to install something on their machine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, apparently it doesn't take a lot. <laughs> uh, the University of uh, uh, Pennsylvania State University, Carnegie Mellon, and NIST uh, collaborated to create a paper on, uh, on just that topic. And the way they approach the problem is uh, they use Mechanical Turk, which is a platform from Amazon to allow people who want to, you know, have a, like a small menial task that they want to farm out to a lot of people and, and get a response to go ahead and, and allow that transaction to happen. So with the use of Mechanical Turk, they hired like a few thousand, uh, like a couple thousand people uh, or gave them the opportunity to be part of the survey without them knowing uh, that this was a research project. Uh, they told them that they would pay them anywhere from like one cent to a dollar. Um, and uh, they would have to, all they would have to do is download this piece of malware. Oh, well, sorry. They didn't say malware. They didn't say malware. They had to download this piece of software. Um, double click on it and let it run for 60 minutes. At the completion of that time, uh, they would get a code and they would get paid the sum of money that they were requested. And then for extra 50 cents, they could fill out a survey. Um, so they found some interesting uh, numbers out of that. Uh, first of all, the uh, participation rate varied depending on how much they offered for the task. So uh, they did this over five weeks and every week they offered a different amount of money. The first week, uh, one cent, then five cents, then 10 cents, then 50 cents, and then a dollar. Um, and some interesting patterns emerged. Uh, so for one cent, uh, there were very few people who actually even got a chance to view that advertisement on Me Me uh, Mechanical Turk. Uh, because uh, I guess they were not, most people wouldn't be interested in getting paid a cent to do something for a whole hour. Um, but they still got um, maybe like a hundred something participants for that. And of all the people who viewed that advertisement, about 22% of the people actually you know, downloaded the malware and, and let it run. Um, there were some people that downloaded the malware but didn't run it once, once they downloaded it, but some people you know, downloaded it and then ran it. Um, then when they got to a dollar, it was, first of all, a lot more people viewed uh, the ad to, to participate in this, uh, but then also they got a better uh, number of people to actually try to participate. And I think 44% of people for a dollar uh, would download an unknown piece of software uh, and double click on it. Um, they, they had no idea that it was a, a research project. Uh, there may have been some sort of a uh, kind of like a ULA looking uh, consent form in the beginning uh, when you click next on the program. Uh, uh, they didn't show a screenshot of that. Uh, but I believe that basically uh, it's very interesting findings. Uh, oh, they also recorded, um, they also recorded um, how many people had like a some sort of antivirus or protection on running on their PC. They were also trying to determine how many people have uh, like VMware installed or running things through uh, like a virtual machine. Uh, so they found uh, only 17 
uh, people were running were running this through some sort of virtual machine, like Parallels, I think, in OS X or uh, I guess VMware or Zen or something like that in, in the other platforms. Uh, but only 17 people uh, were doing that. And uh, this was encouraging, actually. 80% of the people uh, that participated in this actually had some sort of security software installed. Unfortunately, I think like 16% of them already had malware installed as well. <laughs> uh, and this was something, another kind of interesting finding buried in the paper is that there was a slight, uh, I guess, correlation to the people who were infected with malware having antivirus, that number, that percentage was higher than the number of people who were infected with malware who didn't have antivirus. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, and the, the reason the, they think that is because maybe people who have AV feel like they're better protected and are more likely to engage in this behavior uh, that's probably more risky, like you know, downloading some piece of code and executing it. So uh, that was actually a very interesting finding. I don't know if it's a statistically significant percentage difference, but uh, you know, in the analysis they did, they definitely saw something there to make note of it. I that was one of the things that really stuck out at me from this one was that 17% of the folks who had a malware had AV versus 11% had malware and no AV. That was not what I expected, but yeah, but we, we, we talk all the time, um, you know, antivirus is, is a good thing to have, uh, but it only goes so far, and the vast majority of it, you know, works by doing signature matching, and if they haven't seen the malware yet, then they won't have a signature for it yet. So, you know, while I don't advise people to go without... You wouldn't go driving in a car just because you knew it had the latest safety features kind of the same you know putting yourself at risk is still putting yourself at risk no matter how safe you right just because you have airbags doesn't mean you should run into that wall all right thank you very much Dan uh, and our our last story is actually uh, a personal experience that John was hoping to share with us so John take it away sure yeah so the uh, was coming home I think one night after a baseball game or something and had eaten you know, just eating dinner and sitting at the table and the phone rings. You know how, at least it didn't ring during dinner. <laughs> my, my wife gets on the phone and was talking to a gentleman who was telling her that he had identified us as having a, a PC infected with malware in our, in our home. And, you know, of course, my wife, Teresa, knows what I do for a living. <laughs> so she handed me the phone and said, why don't you talk to my husband? He knows more about PCs and computer stuff than I do. So, so decided to kind of play along a little bit with the call. I think we, uh, we all tend to do. And, uh, you know, I started capturing all the data. You know, I asked the person what their name was. It was Jerry. And asked Jerry what company he worked with and what his title was. He was a global technical. It kind of mumbled the next bit. And then, you know, they said the company's name was PC Speedy. And so the... You know, you know, after discussing it, he said, you know, hey, they detected my IP infected and that they wanted to help me out. And I said, oh, great. You know, um, you know, what if we and I told him, uh, you know, if we get disconnected, I, you know, I want to make sure I get back in touch with you. Give me can I have your phone number? And they gave me this phone number in Las Vegas, Nevada, which actually is the, a company called 
uh, either PC Speedy or Speedy PC, depending upon how you uh, <laughs> you look it up, and which didn't match Jerry's phone number, which was out of Louisiana, but it still is, you know, probably within the realm of possibility that they're, you know, a call center or something like that. And so, you know, I, of course, you know, I, I knew that it was fake, but, you know, I could see somebody who had even gotten that far thinking that this might be legitimate. So, so we, we chatted a bit and I started, you know, talking about, you know, what was going on and he was telling me about that they saw my IP attacking some servers and they detected it and they wanted to help and about that time, you know, I was tired, it had been a long day, <laughs> I just said, okay, alright Jerry, you know, we're, we're done, you know, I explained to him that, you know, I was in the profession, that I knew that it was, you know, a social engineering attempt, you know, to sell me a product I didn't need and it, at at best and at worst infect me with some kind of a malware um, they were needing some money and told them not to call me again um, you know there, there's a few things that you know my, my wife uh, you know was kind of surprised that I ended the call at that point and I just said I was just bored <laughs> you know if anything you know, the, you know it is something that you know kind of was surprising to me you know how far this guy and how business like he, he did appear to be um I didn't get as much information as I wish I'd had. I thought about, you know, after the call, you know, if the call was over, should I, you know, did a call trace, you know, of course, go to law enforcement. Um, I wish I had asked, you know, really exactly how did they get the IP address and then get to my phone number? You know, an answer which I would assure would have been they got it from the phone company or they got it from an ISP, which, you know, we don't do. <laughs> um mm -hmm. But it, it's it's a it, it was a it was a fun call. Like I said, I like to play around with these guys a little bit sometimes when they call. But it, it is certainly, you know, from a recommendation perspective, you know, depending on how comfortable you feel, is you know, you want to do capture as much information as you can, because you and you do want to report it to somebody, whether it just be the do not call list to, to law enforcement, you know, to AT and T. I mean, you can you can do that as well. Um, but make sure you do tell them not to call again. You know, because it, it is something that you know that they're they they should not do. And um, this particular company has got lots of complaints, so uh, just kind of be on the on the lookout that they are doing cold calls like this. Yeah, my father got a call like this a, a couple months ago, two three months ago, and uh, since I don't answer calls that don't have a caller ID that I recognize, I don't get yeah. these. But I've always wanted to ask them. What was the IP address that you saw? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure nobody asks it. Uh, yeah. What was the IP address you saw? How do you know it was me? Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that was the same question. I After the call was over, I said, I wish I just asked. Just because you, you know that they wouldn't, either they would have hung up probably or given me, you know, some some crazy answer that wouldn't have made any sense. Well, maybe they would have told you 192.168.0.1. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not me. I'm 192.168.0.2. Oh. You hear that, guys? If you're going to call Jim, make sure you get the IP address right. Now, this has all the hallmarks of a standard social engineering attack, the, the biggest one being the urgent request at the beginning, you know, letting you know that something horrible has happened to your computer, which should scare you into taking some sort of action. Um, and if you get a cold call like this, you should be wary, obviously. And um, never install software. They always want to install some kind of remote admin software after a while. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. And I've often wondered if the guys who are running the front end of this, the ones who are actually on the phone, are 
are even aware that what they're doing is illegal or that what they're doing is not technically, you know, correct. I mean, maybe they've been trained in this. That maybe their idea of, of technical support is to do exactly what the, what's on their script and that it is actually real tech support. I've always wondered that. Um, but the fact remains that, you know, whether or not they're aware of what they're doing, um, it still is illegal. So thank you for sharing that with us, John. And, you know, our listeners, our, our viewers should definitely keep an eye out for similar scams and report them if you do find them. All right, moving on to the Internet weather report for this week. Uh, we have a couple of interesting ports this week. Uh, the first one is 135 TCP, which is the uh, DC, DCE RPC locator service in Windows. Uh, we've seen uh, a good amount of activity in the last few weeks on this port, and uh, of particular interest this week is that it's actually decreased somewhat. Um, you can see in the graph here the last 30 days, and in the last day or so, we actually have a drop off in the number of, of scanning flows. So that's a decrease in traffic. Um, not quite sure what's happening here, but it is good to see. Uh, majority of the sources from this are from a specific ISP in China and for scanning from a static source port. So um, moving on, we actually have, I was, I was very interested in that, that one Supermicro article and the particular port. So I took the liberty of looking at the, our flows for that port in particular. and. In the last 30 days, you can see that um, actually it looks like on the 20th, the day after the article came out, immediately we started seeing some traffic for it. Now, there's not that many scan sources. There's somewhere in the range of about 10 at the peak. Uh, but you can see that a significant number of, of flows are actually gener being generated by those small number of scanners. So someone's looking for this, and someone's looking very hard for it. Um, so you can always sort of see when the new the new hot attack comes out you know when when heartbleed came out we saw a similar kind of explosion in interest in ssl ports and you can kind of expect to see this whenever something brand new that has you know it's such a rich attack um vector you'll you'll see people who who are immediately interested code something up that night and start scanning the next day so interesting to see that and uh next up is uh, a little bit of a weird one uh port 7004 TCP, which is related to AFS uh, and Kerberos auth servers. AFS, I believe, is a, a file system uh, which uses, um, I'm trying to remember the name, it's a KA server, is the name for the particular server type in the scheme. And I think it's actually outdated. Uh, I think Kerberos 4 was the last version to use this. I, I may, if I have the technical details, I'm sure, wrong, someone I'm sure will, will email us and let me know that I'm completely borking this up. But uh, I believe that this, they're looking for a very particular uh, outdated version of Kerberos here. Uh, this is just from those last seven days, a very short spike. Uh, the sources were from US, uh, a very well-known cloud provider, and Latin America. Uh, so we do occasionally see these little one-offs. Um, shows that someone out there is interested in this port for a particular reason. Maybe they know something that we don't know, or maybe they're looking for a very old vulnerability that's sort of passe at this point, uh, but always good to keep track of these kind of blips. Uh, top 10 most probe ports for this week. Uh, 22 TCP is at the top of the list this week. Uh, last week, I think it was 135 with the lion's share, but it seems that they are down to number two. Uh, 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server. 445 is, I believe, related to Samba. 23 is Telnet. 53 UDP is DNS. Uh, skipping over ICMP, we have 8080 TCP, which is sometimes an alternate web port, but also known to be a, a web proxy port. So someone may be interested in finding open web proxies that they can abuse. Uh, port 80 TCP is your standard web server, and there's a whole cornucopia of things that they could be looking for there. 
and 5900 TCP. Uh, I'm actually forgetting this one. Stan, do you recall? I actually don't recall this. Uh, was it 5000 TCP a few weeks ago that we were interested in? Uh, 5000 TCP, I think, was our Synology disk stations? Something like that. I like think so. Sort of 5900 is VNC. VNC. Uh, thank you very much, guys. All right. So you can see there's been a little bit of a change um, in the last few. 5900's been bumped up four places since last week, so significantly more, but still not um, one of the top, top contenders for scanning. Uh, now we have most sources probing, which again is slightly different. Most sources probing means how many individual machines have an interest in this and not the full volume of scans. Um, 445 at the top this week, uh, followed by TCP, uh, 23 TCP Telnet, a uh, little bit of ICMP in there, 80 and 8080 are our web ports. 27015, I believe, is related to gaming in some way. Uh, so that may just be um, an, an increase in gaming traffic. Um, skipping over ICMP again. Uh, 16470, I believe, is still related to zero access. It's one of those, those handful of high ports that it likes to use. And then 8081 is yet another potential uh, web proxy port or web service port. Looking at the recon index for this week, uh, this is actually a 30-day view. Uh, you can see in this last bit here that we have a small drop-off in the number of sources scanning overall, but a significant increase in the number of probes. So we've got fewer, fewer machine scanning, but they're more interested or more, more aggressive in what they're doing. Uh, just interesting to note. And that's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can follow us on Twitter to get notice of our new episodes at at threattrack. That's T-H-R-E-A-T-T-R-A-Q. Uh, threattrack video is available on att.com slash threattrack and on the ATT Tech Channel page on YouTube. There is an audio-only version available on iTunes. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Stan, thank you. Jim and John, thank you as well for joining me remotely. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.